What were China and Taiwan relations like from 1970 until now? How has Taiwan transitioned from a police state to a full democracy? How has Taiwan grown to be such an economic powerhouse? What leaders have influenced Taiwan and what factors could potentially affect the future of Taiwan? We will learn the answers to these questions and more in today's episode, part two of the last 100-ish years in Taiwan. Welcome to Wiser World, a podcast for busy people who need a refresher on all things world. Here we explore different regions of the globe, giving you the facts and context you need to think historically about current events. I truly believe that the more we learn about the world, the more we embrace our shared humanity. I'm your host, Ali Roper. Thanks for being here. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. This should go without saying, but if you haven't listened to part two of the last 100 years in Taiwan, I would definitely go back and do that. I use words and vocab in this episode that won't make sense without that foundational knowledge. All right, let's keep going with Taiwan. Today, we're going to focus on Taiwan after 1970. And you'll remember that in the last episode, we covered the Japanese occupation, the different sub-ethnic groups on the island. That's going to come into play majorly in this episode. We talk about the Chinese Civil War and the Kuomintang, its relocation to Taiwan, the 228 incident. There's a lot of important information. Really excited to get into part two. So in 1971, Nixon's national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, travels to Beijing and meets with Chairman Mao and his premier in secret meetings. And I want to tell you a quick story from that time that gives us a little insight into the Chinese mentality at the time and possibly even now regarding Taiwan. So I'm going to quote a historian here. Quote, It is said that during initial get-to-know-you talks with the premier, Kissinger asked what the premier thought was the last repercussions of the 1789 French Revolution. The story goes that he thought for a while and then replied, It is too early to tell. This message to Kissinger that he was dealing with a culture that viewed objectives in a very different time frame from that of the United States was reinforced in the meeting with Mao. Kissinger tried to get from the Chinese leader a commitment that the Taiwan issue would be dealt with peacefully. Mao said it was difficult to give such a commitment of a matter of internal Chinese politics, but Beijing would agree to work for that objective. Later, Mao added that he believed China could do without Taiwan for a hundred years, but he thought that in the end, the matter would have to be dealt with by force. End of quote. I found this very interesting because you can see here that in many ways, and we've seen this in area, other areas of politics as well in China, that China's playing the long game. In the U.S. and in other countries with short election cycles, we tend to be a little more short-term minded. And again, this is my own opinion right here. But here in the U.S., we don't have one political party that has ruled our country by itself since 1949. We have multiple political parties. Personally, I think that this change of thought and how the parties push against each other means that we get more diversity of opinion, more people are represented. I could go on and on about what I think are benefits to multi-party systems. 
But in terms of a positive of a one-party system, it is that they get to think on a very long-term scale. And the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, is able to plan and think long-term in terms of its goals, particularly with Taiwan. So I digress for a second. After Kissinger's visit on October 25th, 1971, the UN passes a resolution that recognizes China, the PRC, People's Republic of China, as the only legitimate represent representative of China to the UN. Chang in Taiwan is offered a dual representation deal, but he refuses it. So Taiwan, or the Republic of China, withdraws from the UN. And this is a big moment from Taiwan. Then in 1972, Nixon visits Beijing. President Nixon from the United States visits Beijing, which left the KMT feeling very betrayed. Beijing at this time refuses to even contemplate any reference to two Chinas or one China, one Taiwan, or an independent Taiwan, or even the phrase that the status of Taiwan remains to be determined. They were firm that Taiwan belonged to China. And in the agreements between the U.S. and Beijing during this time, the language gets fishy in the documents. It's really interesting. In the Chinese versions, they say that the U.S. accepts that Taiwan is part of China, while in the U.S. documents, it says that America observes that others accept that Taiwan is part of China. In the American statement on Taiwan in 1972, it says, quote, the U.S. acknowledges that all Chinese on either side of the Taiwan Strait maintain there is but one China and Taiwan is a part of China. The U.S. government does not challenge that position. It reaffirms its interest in a peaceful settlement of the Taiwan question by the Chinese themselves, end of quote. Again, it was kind of a weak acceptance of one China without specifying which of the governments actually represents China. Because the ROC on Taiwan think they represent China. The CCP on mainland China think they represent China. Again, a critical moment. Both regimes insist that Taiwan is a part of China, but the native Taiwanese people pre-1949 have no voice because they are being repressed by the KMT at the time. Nixon's visit to China in 1972, he establishes this diplomatic liaison between China and the U.S. And the U.S. did still recognize the Republic of China in Taipei, but it's very complex on how nuanced all of it was. And in 1972, Cheng Qingkuo, Chiang Kai-shek's son, becomes Taiwan's premier as Chiang Kai-shek begins to age. When Chiang Kai-shek died in April 1975, two years after his son became the premier, Cheng Qingkuo became the president in 1978. And when Chiang Kai-shek died, a huge memorial was built for him in Taipei. And this is actually a major tourist attraction you can go visit. After what happened in 1972 with the U.S. and China, Taiwan really wanted to regain power and influence with the U.S. And so it kind of advanced on two fronts. The first was kind of to charm the U.S., they charmed U.S.-related business, politics, academia, sport. They would just lavish hospitality on the United States. Taiwan really wanted to kind of like wine and dine the Americans. The second front was that we now see this as a very complicated and somewhat foolish decision, but they also decided to make the U.S. a target of a very extensive espionage operation or spy operation. And the goal was that they would do everything they could to prevent 
the United States from shifting its diplomatic recognition to Beijing any further than it had already had. And it took the U.S. a long time to realize that they were the target of a huge spy operation by an allied nation. And there were a lot of Taiwanese people living in the United States at this time. And by 1977, many of those Taiwanese people were under surveillance by the FBI. And Taiwan's reputation was damaged at that time. Also, the KMT's corruption was also being exposed. Opium and heroin were being heavily trafficked on the island. And so during the 1970s, Taiwan, China kind of compete for diplomatic recognition between the powerful countries. Lots of diplomatic arrangements going on at this, this time. So when Jimmy Carter takes office, he has a unique role in all of this because he had been an officer in 1949 and he had seen some of the corruption of the KMT, was not impressed, impressed, was not a fan. And so he had a tough job because the U.S. public didn't understand what he saw in the, in the KMT. He's, they saw Taiwan in a bit of a more simplistic way as an underdog at the hands of a communist evil, which again has roots of truth, but not completely the full truth. And in 1979, Carter actually established diplomatic relations with China, who was ruled by Deng Xiaoping at the time, and he withdrew recognition of Taipei, Taiwan. Deng Xiaoping was thrilled. He had gotten the U.S. to switch diplomatic recognition from Taiwan. He was also thrilled at the idea that maybe the United States would stop selling weapons to the island. And you have to remember that Deng Xiaoping and Cheng Qingkuo went to school together. They knew each other. The CCP and the KMT were kind of like rival brothers. They both wanted to reunify China just under different terms. And many members of the U.S. Congress felt, well, Taiwan's doing well enough, future's bright enough, they're going to be fine if we diplomatically recognize China. But this was seen as a huge betrayal for many Taiwanese. In fact, Chang even said that the Republic of China cannot expect to have confidence in any free nation in the future. There was serious disdain for, Char for Carter on the island of Taiwan at this time. And the ROC had some major diplomatic setbacks during this time as well. Taiwan had to accept this designation of Chinese Taipei in 1981 when it went to the Olympic Games. It couldn't be called Taiwan. It had to be called Chinese Taipei. And meanwhile, for the people of Taiwan on Taiwan, tensions were still being felt about the KMT controlling everything and pro-democracy protesters and opposition leaders were arrested in a number of different situations. One major incident in 1979 that drew international attention to how repressive the KMT was. There were lots of arrests, long prison sentences. One positive of these incidents were that eventually there was the birth of the Democratic Progressive Party or the DPP in 1986. So eventually this party, the DPP, becomes a major party and it was all grown from these pro-democracy protests in Taiwan in the 1970s. And Chen Qingkuo is president from 1975 to 1988 and starting in 1979, major political changes began happening. Many began to see Taiwan as kind of the home of exiled mainlanders. This was a hit to the KMT ego. But more native islanders were appointed to senior leadership. And by 1980, Chang decided that the KMT could no longer use its tricks in upcoming legislative elections. They still weren't fair elections, but they didn't kind of stink of corruption as much as past elections had. So by the 1980s, the KMT 
had received, you know, nearly relentless pushback from the Taiwanese community for 35 years. And again, you'll remember the mainlanders were a minority on Taiwan. And in 1983, Cheng Ching says, quote, no political party can maintain its advantage forever if it does not reflect public opinion and meet the people's demands, end of quote. So in other words, the KMT began to see to some extent that they could not claim legitimacy when large numbers of Taiwanese were demanding greater empowerment. And so at first they kind of offered a limited democracy. And Taiwan changed from a hard authoritarianism to a softer approach. And the number of foreign visitors doubled to the island. The economy started to grow. And under Ronald Reagan in the United States, they made a Taiwan Relations Act in 1983. And the U.S. basically repaired some of its relations that had happened under Carter and basically said to Taiwan, we want to live in peace with you, but we're not going to interfere with you. By this time, Ching Ching Kuo decided that his heir, whoever would follow him, should be a native Taiwanese person. And he wanted one who said he was dedicated to unification with China at some point. And this was a bit of a surprise because they they could have continued the Chang line. It was not expected that he would be a supporter of reform. And in many ways, he received disapproval from other KMT leaders for straying from this agenda. But the former mayor of Taipei, Li Tenghui, was his pick. And Li Tenghui gave a speech about denouncing the idea of Taiwan independence, and he said that the island could never forget its Chinese heritage, and he became the VP. Fascinating that he said this at the time, but now we know that he actually became a very vocal advocate for Taiwanese independence. And Li actually came from the generation that grew up under the stable Japanese rule, and he had benefited from what was probably the best education in Asia at the time. We'll talk more about him in a minute. During Cheng Ching Kuo's final years, he reformed many things. He started permitting opposition parties, restructuring the KMT. Um, and the interesting thing is that opposition to the KMT was very resistant of martial law because it had been in effect since 1949. And in one statement from the opposition, they say, quote, martial law is not supposed to be used to deal with every type of possible crisis and then become a permanent institution. If martial law is perpetually used, you are trying to change the constitution system. In the case of Taiwan, by 1986, martial law had been in effect for 37 years, which is the longest period that any country in the world has imposed martial law. In democratic nations, martial law is only a temporary provision, end of quote. So in 1987, martial law ended. It was banned. This was a big deal. The KMT had used martial law, they felt, for as long as the island faced a threat from China. But eventually, this was done away with, and dem democratization, big word, democracy goes into high gear. And many historians see this time, 1987, as the time that the white terror ended. And thus begins a long path from martial law to a multi-party democratic system. As we know from history, it is a very long and hard process to democratize. On January 1st, 1988, submissions of applications for political parties are announced. Restrictions on newspapers were lifted. A 40-year-old ban on visits to the mainland is lifted for people living on Taiwan. They could go back and visit family. It is said that the Tiananmen Square incident that happened in China at that time influenced this very much. 
You also have to remember that all of the revolutions are going on in the Soviet bloc countries at this time. This is a very busy time in world history. A lot's happening in the world. The Cold War is closing, coming to a close. The Soviet Union is collapsing. And Taiwan's KMT is allowing democratic reform after 40 years of martial law. So if I were to sum up Taiwan and China's and United States relations during the 1970s and 80s, I would say that they were tense. The U.S. had overall Cold War grand strategy, they wanted to keep Taiwan within its bounds. Chang put up a fight many times. But Taiwan did also receive a lot of aid from the United States during this time, which benefited the island enormously. And in many ways, could we say that the United States having this strategy of containing Taiwan from attacking China, did that benefit Taiwan in the long run? Possibly. It's hard to say, but it might have been in Taiwan's best interest. For China, from their point of view, the Cold War was a disaster because they didn't get to mop up this issue of Taiwan. It's still unresolved. And so during this time, Taiwan also struggled because it lost some of its diplomatic power, a lot of its diplomatic influence. But also the people at home in Taiwan did start to see more political reform and more move to more toward democracy. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So at the end of the 1980s, Chang Ching Kuo begins to get sick, and he has this huge power base. People were really nervous about it, but Li Tenghui steps in as he was expected to, and Chang Ching Kuo dies in January of 1988. With Li ascending to the presidency, this is seen to most Taiwanese as the birth of a new Taiwan. And even though Li was a member of the KMT, he did have strong support from the public. He was not the same brand of KMT as other leaders at the time. Kind of like how in the United States, we have different political parties, but not every member of the party agrees with each other. Lee's views differed from Chiang Kai-shek's, for example. And a lot of the KMT conservatives were very worried about what was going to happen here. And there's a lot of internal struggle. And so to calm down these people, he actually put up pictures of Chiang Kai-shek, Sun Yat-sen, Chiang Ching Kuo, behind him in his opening address. So showing, hey, I want I want stability. And Lee was president from 1988 to 2000. He was the first island-born president. Even now in 2022, Lee is generally seen as a very benevolent man for the new Taiwan that he helped create. He kind of held a gradual revolution when he came into power. He had to overcome a lot of economic disadvantages to figure out how to solve some of these problems. Taiwan changed pretty significantly under his hand. It is said that any negotiation of uniting 
China and Taiwan kind of shrinks to nothing during this time. One historian said it is the end of mainlander colonialism on the island and the beginning of a process called Taiwanization. Everybody kind of uniting under the banner of Taiwan. It took a while, but it did happen. Lee's revolution was mostly political. He established a timeline for full democracy. He completely reconstructed parliament, new elections were begun. They kind of almost started from scratch in in many senses. And he dismantled the idea of having a governing body for mainland China, which surprisingly was still going on. So he really separated China from Taiwan. And Beijing was shocked by this and very unhappy about it. Also during the 1980s, as China started opening up parts of its economy to free market enterprises, we talked about in the China episodes, Taiwan began to invest in China. Really interesting. One of the Social consequences of this investment is that Taiwanese businessmen men began bringing back home mainlander wives. And even today, these mainlander wives are widely not accepted by the Taiwanese. Some people think that they were groomed for this purpose and they're spies and they're trying to disrupt things should China want to invade one day. So again, some internal politics going on here. In the 1990s, there were more waves of reform under Lee. I could go on and on about the different reforms, but essentially really massive reforms going on. The constitution undergoes lots of revision and he mostly wanted to expand Taiwanese sovereignty. He even compared himself to Moses leading the Israelites to create a country of their own. And he also drew a comparison between the ethnic Chinese who immigrated to Taiwan and the Europeans who settled in the United States in search of freedom. So, yeah, the mainland saw Lee as a separatist. He didn't play up Taiwanese independence necessarily, but he just kind of aimed to, as one historian put it, capture the political middle ground by focusing on economic growth, constitutional reform, and enhancing Taiwan's opportunities. And during this time, there were a lot of divides between older and younger generations, mainlander versus pre-1949 Taiwanese people, or lots of corruption within the KMT, The KMT officials were known for giving illicit payments to pay people off, benefiting business, lots of quiet issues going on. The major opposition party, the DPP, starts gaining ground during this time because there's a lot of corruption and crime in local elections with the KMT at this time. In fact, officials who tried to crack down on criminal enterprises would get threats on their family. They encountered a lot of issues with gangsters, organized crime. And as for Taiwan and China relations, as the doors opened for more communication, things began to get more complex. So we have rivals here that also invest in each other. The plot thickens, right? Taiwan becomes a member of the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation. They start communicating with Hong Kong, the Chinese, Taiwanese representatives go over There are still conflicts going on between Taiwan and Beijing in the Taiwan Strait. Beijing still tries to intimidate Taiwan before elections. Taiwan's stock market drops. There's just lots of back and forth and back and forth. And in 1996, Taiwan held its first ever direct presidential election with KMT's Li Tenghui and his running mate. They won. So he essentially, even though he had been running the country, And for eight years already, he became the first democratically elected leader in Taiwan's 4,000-year history. And Beijing is so mad about this election that they fired unarmed missiles into the sea to kind of show Taiwan how easily they could 
be blockaded and trade could be halted is a pretty big deal. Essentially, the Beijing's message was, if you vote for Li Tenghui, you're choosing war. But you know, Li urged his people to not let China influence them. And during this time, during these elections, the U.S., which was under Clinton at the time, responded by ordering two aircraft carriers to go close to the island. And this publicity made China a little nervous because the United States was a major military might at the time. And China did not have that same power. And so since that moment, 1996, that election when the U.S. kind of basically like flexes its muscles to say like don't mess with Taiwan's elections here China has since been beefing up its military and it's had some we've had some more Taiwan straight crises as we've called them but this one was a pretty big deal and internationally this was kind of seen as Taiwan's scoring of a victory probably the biggest thing to happen in the 1990s was the emergence of a true multi-party system the KMT weakened um, because elections were becoming more fair. We're showing what the majority of the population truly felt. Additionally, during this time, Aborigines were treated better, and many Aboriginal activists began to see some improvements in terms of the rights of Aborigine people. So basically, during this time period, we're seeing huge socioeconomic modernizations. We're seeing it become one of Asia's miracle economies, as many people talk about. Huge successful transfer to democracy all things considered had its hiccups had its problems had its corruption for sure but generally seen as quite a successful transfer to democracy taiwan's companies began to be well known during the 90s for example one of the largest dedicated semiconductor foundries is found in taiwan today almost all of the world's computer chips are manufactured in taiwan and in the march of 2000 the KMT, for the first time, loses power. It has been more than 50 years that the KMT has been in power on Taiwan, so the whole world was watching this election. The Democratic Progressive Party, the DPP, as we've talked about, their main candidate, his name was Chin, and he was elected president, and both him and his running mate, both of them had been jailed for their political activities in the 1980s in opposition to the KMT. So this is a pretty big deal in terms of like symbolic politics. But Chen ran under the premise of expanding social welfare, fighting corruption within the government. And his first few years in office, I mean, after 50 years of the KMT, they were pretty chaotic, very difficult to make compromises because um, the majority in the legislature was still KMT. He was softer with China than Li had been. And Chen did something interesting. When he was put into power, he also resigned from the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party, saying that as president, he would serve all of the people of Taiwan. China at the time was threatening, saying a lot of threats that if you do not agree to a timetable for unifying with the mainland, we'll invade, things like that. The new president, Chen, he's like, there's going to be no talks with China as long as China is stuck on this one China principle. He also began using the term Taiwan at this time instead of using Republic of China or ROC. So this is an important time in terms of just the language that's being used. Even though China and Taiwan relations are not super hot at the time, Taipei does lift a 50-year ban on direct trade and investment with China during this time. And Chen is making tons of changes at home to root out a lot of deep-seated traditions of the KMT and the government. Taiwan becomes a member of the World Trade Organization. And all of this is in a time of a domestic 
turmoil politically in Taiwan. 2004, this next election brought a very, very close election. And the incumbent, Chen, gets reelected, but by a razor thin margin. There was even an assassination attempt. So it's just important to remember that these elections are really important. China is watching the elections in Taiwan. It flexes its muscles with missiles during this time, during the 2004 election. And again, we're just seeing how democratic elections are still very new to Taiwan at this period. It's a complicated process. It's often very confusing. It's not easy. And even today, 20 years later, there is still polarization in Taiwan over this issue of the KMT and the DPP and the other political parties and unification with China. On February 28, 2004, at 2.28 p.m., one political group called the Pan Green, they held a rally that protested China's military threats during the 2004 elections, and they wanted to show the world that the people of Taiwan want peace, not war. So they made a human chain of an estimated 2 million people that stretched from the north to the south of Taiwan, and Chen, the president, and Li, the past president, clasped each other's hands in the middle, and it was modeled after the 1989 human chain where there were, you know, the Baltic republics of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania when they protested the Soviet Union. So there is some unification, but again, it's tense times. And in 2005, only 17 years ago, the first direct flights between Taiwan and China were opened up, the first since 1949. And also in 2005, a KMT leader visits China for the first meeting between nationalist and communist party leaders since 1949. Chen receives a lot of resistance from the KMT during his final years in office. And in 2008, a man named Ma, his last name's Ma, is elected president, and he is from the KMT party. And now we see the second peaceful transfer of power between political parties in Taiwan. Interestingly enough, Chen does eventually end up in prison for corruption. And Ma, this KMT leader, 2008 wins. His China policy is centered on improving relationships with China while preserving Taiwan's interests. He was pro-engagement with China. Many people were very worried about a lot of Chinese people coming into Taiwan at this time. But Ma said that he believed in no unification, no independence, no armed conflict. During his time in office, relations and agreements with China began to open up. They reduce trade restrictions. They promote cross-trade, straight economic ties. Some people liked this, some people did not. Even with improved relationships with China, support for unification was and still is extraordinarily low in Taiwan. Most people do not want to unify with China. Ma does also formally apologize for the white terror. And again, talks with China open up. In fact, in December 2008, China gifted two giant pandas to Taiwan, which was seen as an improvement in relations. In 2012, Ma wins again. China becomes Taiwan's biggest trading partner. Relationships improve in that sense. Again, the opposition DPP is working hard to stop it. So I just want to show the push and pull, the push and pull. We have transferred power back and forth between these two political parties that have differing views on China. Reminds me a little bit of the United States in some ways. In 2013, Taiwan and China go to sign a cross-strait services trade agreement. Basically, this means that they want to allow much more free trade and investment with China. They, they, that's what they want. The opposition DPP against this. At the beginning of 2014, 
a student-led movement called the Sunflower Movement happened. They used sunflowers as a symbol of the movement. And students and leaders were protesting this services trade agreement. They felt that the agreement would increase Beijing's power over Taiwan's economy, plus a lot of other domestic politics I won't get into. But the KMT supported it and said that it would help Taiwan's economy. And the protesters actually occupied the legislature and successfully postponed the agreement. So keep in mind, this is very close timing to the Umbrella Revolution in Hong Kong, which we talked about in part three of the China episodes, only a few months before that time. In 2016, a DPP leader is elected back into power and starts enacting laws to preserve many native tongues of the indigenous tribes, also starts voting to remove any symbols of the island's authoritarian past, including references to the former leader Chiang Kai-shek. Obviously, this is a very hot topic over many years. It's also important to know that Taiwan has become a storehouse of Chinese history and a preserver of Chinese heritage. Taiwan's museums actually are some of the best places in the world to study Chinese history. In fact, Taiwan has become a place where even Chinese religious tradition is preserved and allowed to flourish. I found this very interesting about Taiwan. And in 2020, the DPP stays in power, and here we are now in pretty modern times. Taiwan has had to deal with COVID, and since information on COVID is still coming, I'm not going to focus on that here, but we are seeing that Taiwan is struggling with an aging population, increased potential aggression from China. Its COVID deaths actually have been very low, many say due to pretty stringent precautions. Taiwan today is one of the wealthiest countries in Asia. It has risen to rank as the fourth richest country in terms of its net financial assets and the second richest in Asia, according to one study, in terms of its net financial assets. So basically, it's very strong economically. And since Putin invaded Ukraine, there has been an uptick in Chinese aggression toward Taiwan. I know I have seen many headlines about increased flyovers from Chinese military. Some people argue that Taiwan and China are so close, you know, only 100 miles, in some cases even closer than that with the little islands. You know, that any plane just off of China's coast would technically encroach on Taiwan's airspace. But we are seeing, I think, obvious purposeful provocation by China that's going on here. And why is this important? Because there is still no formalized official position on Taiwan from an international perspective. Taiwan is now a wealthy country. It has a massive record of economic self-invention, reinvention, and one of the reasons it's so unique is that it is contested over. Some people won't even listen to this podcast simply because I call Taiwan a country. That in and of itself is a political statement. And there are some people today in Taiwan and China who believe that Taiwan will always be a part of China. And there's still debates over this. There's still battles within the sub-ethnic groups. It's not as homogenous thinking as people may think. As one historian said, to Taiwanese people, the ROC is entirely real and fully independent. After all, the ROC issues their passports. If a landslide buries a highway or a typhoon wipes out a mountain village, the ROC rescue personnel respond. They get their health care from the government. Yet, the ROC flag and anthem are recognized in only a handful of countries, mostly small or tiny. In the Olympics, they are called Chinese Taipei. They have no representation in the UN, and they comply with many international conventions and agreements that they are forbidden to join. Even Taiwan's most important friend, the U.S., treats it at times as a non-entity. People call this an international birdcage to show Taiwan's diplomatic predicament. 
So long as it does not claim national status, Taiwan is able to manage its own affairs and have substantive relations with most countries in the world. Its economic ties are largely unaffected by its political isolation, though this could change at any time, but its ability to defend its political interests is minimal, end of quote. I thought that did a wonderful job of explaining it. So Taiwan's most important officially unofficial relationship with the U.S. is very subtle and not very clear. Taiwan's fate has been determined by others for so long that many Taiwanese, the majority, I would say, want to determine their own fate. Public opinion polls show that a majority of islanders think of themselves as exclusively Taiwanese or Taiwanese first and ethnic Chinese second. Today, we see, again, divide between the ethnic groups, the Aborigines, the Hakkas, the Haklos, the mainlanders. But most people in Taiwan today see, uh, see it as an independent country with its own constitution, its democratically elected leaders. But whether or not it should be a part of China is still hotly contested. Taiwan, as one historian wrote, has not made up its own mind on the issue of China. Let's talk about China for just a second. Why does China want it? It's debated. Some people think it's because of where it is located. Other think it's, others think it's truly just what happened, historically significant as kind of unfinished business from the Civil War. And the current CCP leaders in China, including Xi Jinping, have made the issue of Taiwan a prominent one. They see the eventual incorporation of Taiwan into the People's Republic of China as a vital state interest. In one book, the author wrote, the new generation of leaders in Beijing are steeped in old propaganda of imperial hubris and new pride in their country's growing economic power and influence. For them, Taiwan's de facto independence is unfinished business from China's civil war in 1949 that brought the communist power to Beijing and ousted Kuomintang government to exile on Taiwan. Reclaiming Taiwan would also, in Beijing's eyes, finally end the, quote, humiliation that began in the 1840s when industrialized powers grabbed chunks of China as colonies and trading enclaves, end of quote. So over time, Beijing has tried to persuade Taiwan to agree to unification with the mainland, but even under the idea of like one country, two systems formula like they used with Hong Kong, Taiwan has not been interested in that because they've seen what those areas have been, how those areas have been treated. They're not a fan. Taiwan also is well-armed and has powerful friends. If China were to invade, personally, I think they'd have to be very strategic about it because they would lose support from the international community. And Taiwan theoretically would be backed up by the U.S. as well as Japan. We also see that Taiwan is important to many other Chinese citizens who look to Taiwan for clues to their own futures. So there's certain areas of China. There's a Tibet. There's a predominantly Muslim region in northwestern China, even parts of Inner Mongolia. They all kind of resemble Taiwan in the sense that they were incorporated into the Chinese state later. And so if Taiwan were to become fully independent and diplomatically recognized, these other territories may see it as an opportunity for them as well. So overall, why is Taiwan important? Well, it's important because people live there, but it's also made itself too important to ignore because the PRC is also growing too important to ignore, and it wants to draw Taiwan into its orbit. As the issue of China and Taiwan continues to become a thing or continues to be a thing, many countries are wondering, what side do we take here? 
because we rely on Taiwanese suppliers to make thousands of products and disrupting those operations would be extremely costly to the world economy if China were to invade. I'm just thinking right now about the inflation going on in all over the world just because of the war in Ukraine. I can't even imagine what it would be like if it was China on the line here in terms of the products that are made in China and the products that are made in Taiwan, not to mention the people and the situation that could happen if there were to be an armed conflict between these two countries. So again, this is a really complicated issue, and I hope you're seeing how the future of Taiwan really could affect the day-to-day -day life of citizens all over the world in terms of the products we use, in terms of what could happen if sanctions were to be slapped on either country for invading the other. It's a long-standing issue. It's been going on since 1949, and it is still unresolved. And also for the people of Taiwan who are living in a place that has unresolved diplomatic it's, it's in a diplomatically unstable situation, though the country itself is very stable. So it's just a very complicated issue. I hope I've been able to shed a little bit of light and help you think about things in a different way. Maybe go do your own research and dive deeper into something that you found interesting. My personal takeaways are many, but one of the things are that I thought was most powerful was how much people and individuals matter. I think it's very interesting to see how much the pre-1949 Taiwanese people fought to be heard during the KMT white terror. And for many, many years, they lived under martial law, but eventually they were heard and now they have representation in free elections. And likewise, I think the importance of a person who is willing to challenge their party, for example, Lee with the Kuomintang, he and his supporters within that party were able to create some very significant change that affects the lives of millions of people. And so political leaders, they really matter. And we're going to talk about leadership cults, cults of personality more in the next episode on North Korea. But I just want to encourage us to think about our leaders voting, who we listen to, who we follow, the messages they share, the messages they push for, because leadership really does make a difference. The second takeaway that I had is just how diverse the world is. I think that when I first started looking into Taiwan, I thought I knew a little bit, but the deeper and deeper I go, the more I realize how little I know, how much there is to the world. And again, we've just barely scratched the surface on some of these things, and they're very complex and very nuanced. It's very humbling. I used to think that all Taiwanese people were the same, but they're not. They're definitely not. And so now I know how to navigate, hopefully a little bit more gracefully, those conversations with them with more openness and nuance. And if there's anything I hope these episodes did, I hope it just encouraged you to think about things a little more thoughtfully and just how interconnected and globalized we are, how much what happens in one country or could happen in one country could affect your day-to-day -day life in a very real way. And I think we're seeing that play out currently, but it could continue to happen. And I, I think it's likely to continue to happen. And so I just really enjoyed studying Taiwan. Thank you so much for being here and listening. And I'll see you in a month with North Korea. Please share and review. It means so much to me. And let's go make the world a little wiser. <laughs>